0: History show with Miles
1: Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme, The Life and Legacy of Frank Laudis. From my research on Frank's life, he was the prominent politician in that journey from home rule, from parliamentarianism to Irish independence.
2: How this Irish nationalist united the fractured Republican movement at an important turning point in our history. Also, Irish women in business.
3: She wasn't just keeping things ticking over. She was innovating and pushing the whole time.
2: Antonia Hart on the experience of Irish women who ran businesses in the 19th and early 20th century. But we begin this evening with a major exhibition currently running at the University of Galway, which celebrates the legacy of the university's first professor of Irish. It's called Culture and Citizenship, Tomás O'Malley. A folklore and song collector, newspaper editor, linguist and teacher, Tomás O'Malley was a pioneer in many ways. As we'll hear, he always looked towards the future and his greatest foresight was a commitment to the newest technology of his day. Audio recording. Okay, it diverges considerably from modern standards, but that recording was made by O'Malley in 1929. It's of Maureen y Scully singing a song that many will recall from their school days. On Lumbav is on Hershach, and uh, O'Malley created hundreds of recordings of Irish speakers from every county in Connacht, and also in County Clare. Nearly a hundred years after they were first captured, wax cylinder recordings held in the University of Galway Library were digitised last year with support from Rhianna Gaeltachta. These historic recordings like the one we just heard are now being made available online. And to talk about the life and work of tomas Omolia, O'Mólya I'm joined by Deirdre Nicunila the digital curator of the project. Deirdre you're very really welcome back to the History Show.
4: Thank you very much, Miles.
2: Now, we just heard the voice of one of the best-known Irish-language singers of the 20th century. And uh, there's a possibility, there's a good chance, actually, that that is the earliest recording that exists of her. Tell us a little bit about uh, Maura Ní Scully.
4: Well, Maura Ní Scully was from Dublin originally, but she moved to Galway as a young woman and made her life there. She married a man who was a, a colleague of Thomas Somália in the university. And so, she was a surprise amongst the recordings and also there was no label on the recording. So that gives an idea for your listeners of the role that I'm playing in the development of the Wax Cylinder collection, where uh, sometimes we don't know what voice is on it, if there's a a labelling or a mislabeling or no label at all to go with a particular recording. There are over 500 audio tracks, individual tracks, performances of songs and uh, stories and prayers and sometimes yarns in this archive and it's a job of work to uh, go through them. It's a, a collaborative effort. You've got the archives team in the library and then I'm something of an interlocutor then relying on scholarship and connections and also the community as well, sometimes to to speak with people in all six counties that are represented and try and figure out who are all of these uh, singers and performers.
2: A labour of love, I'm sure, but obviously definitely not easy. So let's talk a bit about Omalia's own background. He came from an Irish-speaking family in Connemara and was also deeply involved in the Republican movement.
4: That's right, yes. uh, Born in 1880, so uh, very much a member of that revolutionary generation. And at the launch of the exhibition that we had uh, on the 30th of September last, Gareth O'Toole, Professor Emeritus of History at the University in Galway, spoke very well, giving some context for O'Malley's emergence. There's still research waiting to be done, really, on the families and, I suppose, key figures in the west of Ireland and coming from of communities as well and from rural backgrounds so omalia was one of nine children born in the mam valley to a prosperous farming family and they were interested in education and in uh, i suppose status uh, as garrett had pointed out in his remarks that they were coming to the fore when that question of independence and of citizenship as well was uh, very much uh, in the ether and omalia's education at home and then in Dublin and on to Liverpool, Manchester and the continent. And eventually by 1909, he has a PhD in linguistics of all things. But that was part of the development of the Irish language and it being recognised as a language of the world and uh, worthy of study and of a place in society as well. So he's formed very much by the cultural milieu at the time and then by the political milieu. So his brother's are members of the volunteers. Porick, his brother, was in the first stall, was on the hillsides in Connemara in the War of Independence. And Thomas is isn't necessarily, would say, politically active member. He's not out with a, a guns on a hillside, for instance, but very much on the ideological side of the movement, thinking about what it might mean for the people around them and in the country to have a, a nation of their own, But interesting to see, nonetheless, that while he's in a professorship in the ivory tower of a university, so to speak, he's not in danger of being sequestered in a way because he's very much out with the community. He's deputising for his brother when the Daw loan is being set up in 1919. So very interesting figure because we might imagine scholars to be sequestered in a way. But when we look at Thomas's life and work, he's very much embedded in the communities around him, both in the rural communities throughout the west of Ireland and also in Galway City.
2: Now, he obviously would have been in some danger himself during the, the civil war. His brother, Pádraig O'Malley, was, was targeted and on occasions the threat to a particular individual would spread to his family, to members of his family.
4: Yes. And in Thomas's case, one of the key concerns, I suppose, for the authorities was that by then he's the editor of an Irish language newspaper on Stuck, which was established in 1917. And he was editing that right up until 1931. The printing house was actually attacked by the authorities, so then for a period the paper couldn't print. And in Galway in late 1920, when things were getting particularly hot, he headed west really for fear of, of his life that he might be targeted and was out in Connemara then in 1921 when the most famous incident of the War of Independence in Connemara in April Ca Wien as it's known, where their family home, which was effectively the headquarters for the West Connemara Flying Column, uh, was attacked. And that whole period, Tomás actually documented in one of the few Irish language books about the War of Independence, Un Tumid Rúa. So he's observing all of that. And then also, because he has that platform in the university of being a figure and an intellectual figure, he doesn't shy away from holding political opinions and also seeing the role of identity and cultural identity and language in that emergence of citizenship.
2: Let's talk about his linguistic activities. He became involved in a project to do a survey of different types of Irish, different dialects of Irish in Ireland. We think in broad terms of there being three different dialects, Ulster, uh, Connacht and Munster, but there were actually far more. And he worked with a German linguist, Dr Wilhelm Dögen. Tell us about that project.
4: So O'Malley, as I say, had trained as a linguist and he himself had been collecting right throughout his life, interested in song and folklore in general, but then also this scholarly interest in sort of the the minutiae of dialects. And so it's interesting to see the practice of that, that initially they're just relying on manuscript and writing things down and IPA to track all of that and map it. But then, of course, early 20th century, we have recording technologies coming to the fore. So the connection with Wilhelm Dögen, who was a a well-known German linguist who had actually collected dialects in prisoner of war camps in the First World War on the continent. In the early 1920s, in the wake of the Guilford Commission, there was an initiative established by the government with the support of the Royal Irish Academy to map the Irish language and its dialects throughout the country, uh, the focus mainly being Ulster, Connacht, and uh, Munster, the, to uh, recognise both the dialects and the strongholds. So, Dugan was the authority for all of this, but of course, he was very reliant on the local experts. And in Connacht and the west of Ireland, that meant Thomas O'Morley. So, Dugan's project began in 1928, ran until 1931. But interestingly, O'Malley was already recording before Duggan's project ever reached Galway. O'Malley had an Ediphone recording machine for wax cylinders by the summer of 1928. And he's already recording from then right up to 1930 when they have this very hectic two week period in early September of 1930 on campus. And they're in effect bringing the mountain to Muhammad. So O'Malley is coordinating the logistics to bring scores of singers and storytellers to the campus to perform for the recording device.
2: OK, we're going to hear another short excerpt from one of O'Mawlya's recordings. This is Parik O'Hara from the Ox Mountains in South Sligo spinning a yarn.
5: I'm going to the ground. I'm going to get to scale I'm go the I'm going to I'm I'm
0: on. Uh, the tell
2: us a little bit more about that recording, Deirdre, of uh, Porticohara from uh, the Ox Mountains in Sligo.
4: Well, Porrick is one of a, a generation of Irish speakers who were native Irish speakers in Sligo and there were native speakers there right up until the 1950s. And in this pocket of the Ox Mountains, kind of surrounded by Mayo in a way, there were a number of performers there. So Porrick is telling a, a story ostensibly from his own life and it's a very funny story about he, he had intended to go and visit some young girl of the locality and they'd made a date, so to speak, but then he had a friend who waylaid him and they went on another visit and it didn't end well. They got attacked by a dog or something like that. So <laughs> so it's very comical. But um, for me, who's sitting down and listening to these and trying to figure out what it is, they're saying your ear becomes accustomed. Uh, you know, you get past the hiss and maybe hesitations and things. And you sort of tune into the story. And And it's amazing because, you know, audio is so powerful. It can really transport people and they can sort of be there with the performer. Some of the voices are very old as well. We've got people that are born in the mid-19th century. You're talking voices from the famine period as well. So for me, it's an, just an extraordinary privilege to sit with these materials and really listen to them for the first time in uh, nearly 100 years.
2: And O'Malley's own recordings were a little bit less formal than than Dugan's recordings other than what Dugan was looking for.
4: Well, Omalia had he had a certain breadth uh, leeway, maybe to in, indulge in different interests. Perhaps I mean, he he was interested in obviously the linguistics and the clarity of the recording was going to matter in that case. But for linguists, they also need the speaker to be very comfortable with what they're sharing. So that's one of the reasons they pick songs and stories that maybe they're performing on a regular basis. But also, there's the rapport that you build up with the performer. And there's one performer, singer, and storyteller who had come in from near Mount Bellew in, in East Galway, Tom Vatto Lohan. And he ended up actually composing a song about the day that he went all the way into the college to be recorded he called it Oran Nagherneen and it was collected from him years later but he described how they were being uh, you know there was a glass being poured for, for a performer he saw there and when he then got his turn he said now come on fill up my glass there please <laughs> so um, it was a real occasion for uh, people coming together but at, at the same time the, the seriousness behind it as well you can hear the performers just really celebrating that moment of acknowledgement and authority of their own as performers and of the songs and the stories that they held, to have their own voice put on record. And there's another recording, I mean, I've mentioned recording happening on campus, but there's also evidence when we start listening to them in detail that he's off campus, that he's actually conducting fieldwork. And another extraordinary recording that I listened to was recorded, I think, in 1929 in Eris in northwest Mayo. So that's a fair trek. And it's a man who's singing a song about the Cleggan disaster that had happened in 1927. Specifically, its impact in Inishgay, the islands just offshore. So this is contemporary reportage, effectively. And... The Cleggan disaster is what we call the the storm that hit in October 27 and came unexpectedly and there were lots of island and coastal communities all along uh, the Galway and Mayo coast that were caught where they were out fishing and Inishgay, for instance, lost 10 young men because they were caught unawares and all of those communities up and down the coast would have been impacted by that. So Song was one of the ways that those communities memorialised their own history because they were out on the outskirts and it might not have reached uh, newspapers and also the sense of their own experience being captured in song and even the context of it, what it might mean, why it would have happened, the loss. So Omalia, the fact that he's capturing items like that, it's not just about the linguistics. He's very conscious of the role that technology can play in those communities, in their lives. And that's a very modern thought at that time.
2: But he's obviously very interested in language, in the Irish language, professor of Irish, a linguist. Was he concerned about the possible homogenisation of Irish? Is that the reason why he's attempting to record as many different dialects as possible?
4: Well, it's interesting because he was in favour of the effort to standardise Irish. He saw the value in having a standardised form of the language. To allow it to grow and move forward and, and maybe bring all of these communities together. But at the same time he saw also saw the value in the different dialects and also the vocabulary that would go with those different dialects. So he, he wants to achieve both and he also he believes that they can coexist and I mean today We do have that coexistence. Sometimes it can be a bit uncomfortable for particular accents and dialects. But again, just a a modern viewpoint on that. And one of his most famous books, and it was republished in in recent years, is Unbelled Bill The Living Mouth. And it's full of idiom from particularly the West of Ireland, because that was his own forte. And it's still a resource for Irish speakers today.
2: Let's hear another excerpt from a recording. This is the man named Stefan Odrainon from Galway.
1: Stefan Odrainon, horrible.
2: Stéphane O'Drainon there from Galway. Do you to tell us something about that recording?
4: So that's Stefano O'Drainon from Cushmigmore, one of the villages in the Farbacha in Galway. So that was reasonably close to the campus in Galway city for O'Malley to possibly go and visit him or even the other way around as well. So one of many performers that are featured in the collection and there'll be other people from the different communities and families as well like we're starting to track down the relatives of some of the performers as well and part of the exhibition in Galway is that we have our own contemporary singers today Shannon singers who have responded to the to the O'Malley audio archive And have shared contemporary performances of the same songs. So you're able to listen and connect these over two centuries effectively uh, to connect and show how that song tradition and the language practice and its performance tradition as well is alive and well
2: now you 've also come across one recording which I think would be of huge interest to scholars of the War of Independence and that 's an account of the murder of Father Michael Griffin, who was a a priest by the Crown forces in Galway in one thousand nine hundred and twenty
4: yes, so really the the label reads Mara Frio on Taro Grifo so it is about the recovery of father griffin 's body in Barna. The speaker is a man from Barna Thomas McDonough. And when I came across a reference to this recording first, I was really struck by it because I thought this predates Ernie O'Malley's work in the 1950s. Because you have O'Malley, who's from a Republican family, and he's clearly speaking with somebody who, who was also on the Republican side because they're sharing this testimony. And it is testimony is the word where it's 1929. So it's just over eight years after Father Griffin's death. And the same man sings songs as well, but this when he decides to share this excerpt, they're going beyond the linguistic and the folkloristic here, they're moving into historical testimony. Unfortunately, I know listeners would love to listen to the track, but it is very, very indistinct. And the reason for that is because it's one of the earliest ones and they're still getting used to the technology and trying to produce the best quality recording. But there's a tantalising little bit in the middle and I was able to understand meaning at the stroke of midnight. So I can just imagine the this dramatic retelling of the experience at that time. So I need to listen to it again and see if I can interpret a bit more of that particular recording.
2: And Griffin was one of three priests killed during the, the War of Independence, wasn't he?
4: One of only three and his death in Galway was hugely shocking. It was reported in the New York Times. People spoke about it. There were 12,000 people at his funeral as well. There was, there was a particularly notorious band of auxiliaries and, and black and tans in Galway at the time, and. They had committed all sorts of atrocities, this being one of them, but it just goes to show the the level of fear that there was in the community at the time and why O'Mawla himself would have just removed himself from the city given uh, what was going on at the time.
2: And despite being from a family with a pro-treaty Republican background, he was on the committee that drew up uh, Bunroch na Heron, the constitution in 1937.
4: Yes, they were revising the constitution at the time and of course the, the significant element of, of that effort was that Irish was to gain primacy in this particular iteration and so the question of translation or co-raid of, of balancing both versions of the constitution was hugely significant. And O'Malley being a leading scholar of the Irish language in the country at the time, and naturally with his own keen sense of awareness of politics as well, was one of the there were a team of people that were contributing to that work. But it is interesting to see, you know, when we're looking at that generation post Civil War period and the various allegiances and still that relationships, in spite of political preferences, that relationships nonetheless were kept alive and still in favour of trying to bring the, the country forward. And so, yes, there's, uh, de Valera is is there, part of that as well, and writing to O'Malley uh, when he's going to go and visit Dublin to engage in that work.
2: He died in 1938. He was very young. He was only in his 50s. And you sense that he could have done so much more, especially as technology advanced.
4: Absolutely. Uh, In 1935, he actually had secured a grant of £300 from the National University of Ireland to expand on his collecting work. And it would appear, I I haven't found the smoking gun to prove this yet, but it would appear that that some of that money was invested in a new recording device, a disc recorder. So, again, the technology is improving all the time because recording actually was continued immediately after his death on campus because there's references in the papers to other people being recorded on this disc recorder. However, at that stage, he dies January 38. Second World War breaks out and also the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies was set up by De Valera in 1940 and they had an Irish language and linguistics element as part of that. And so in a sense, Dev stole Galway's thunder in a way and the effort that there was... Immediately after Thomas Amoglio's death to establish an Institute of Linguistics in Galway, it fell apart and the energy dissipated somewhat. And so that also accounts for the fact that the uh, wax cylinder recordings remained undeveloped for so long after that technology was moving on and then different interests were being uh, pursued as well. But thankfully, they've been digitised in the nick of time.
2: Far on Himuler Fod, the Karmila that exhibition at the University of Galway is called Culture and Citizenship, Thomas Omalia. It runs until early December. You can find out more about Omalia and listen to some of his recently digitized recordings at universityofgalway.ie forward slash Thomas O'Malley That's T O M A S O M A I L L E. My guest was Deirdre Ni Kanila, Arish Deirdre, Karmila Mahagoth.
4: Mile to miles.
2: After the break, we'll be hearing about Irish Republican Frank Lawless from North Dublin, an important regional leader during the Revolutionary period. Stay with us. <laughs> Welcome back. We're going to hear now about an Irish Republican whose life and legacy was commemorated early this year in Fingal. Frank Lawless died 100 years ago, in April 1922, at a crucial turning point in Irish history, and his funeral was one of the most significant occasions in Fingal's history. This report is from Conor Sweetman.
0: We're all familiar with the major national events that happened during Ireland's revolutionary period. There's the 1916 Rising, followed by the War of Independence. Then there's the Treaty, followed by the Civil War. But alongside these major events and all the big names, there's the grassroots movement and the local leaders who were dedicated to bringing their communities into the New Ireland. One such leader was Frank Lawless from Fingal in North County Dublin.
1: Hi, my name is Dr Declan Brady. I'm a local historian and genealogist. We are in the old Rollestown Cemetery where Frank Lawless is buried uh, Frank Lawless died in an accident uh, a fall from a trap horse and trap in April of 1922 and his funeral was attended by those who would later within a few months face each other in the civil war his funeral was attended by Eamon de Valera, Cahill Brewer Harry Boland, Michael Collins William T Cosgrave, Arthur Griffith and Richard Moncay who all stood beside each other and later faced each other in the Civil War. And two of those, Griffith and Collins, would find themselves dead within a matter of months.
0: The timing of Frank Lawless's funeral is remarkable. The treaty was ratified by the doll in January 1922. From there, relations between the pro-treaty and anti-treaty sides get worse and worse. On the 14th of April, just two days before Frank Lawless's accident, anti-Treaty soldiers occupy the Four Courts in Dublin. This is a direct and provocative challenge to the authority of the government. But here's the most remarkable thing: just four days after the occupation of the Four Courts, both pro-Treaty and anti-Treaty leaders put aside their differences for a couple of hours to attend Frank Lawless's funeral. They even stand together for a photograph at the graveside. And this is the last known photograph of all those big names standing together at the same time. So who was this man that brought them all together for those few hours? Frank Lawless, TD, from Fingal in North County, Dublin.
5: I'm Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD. April 1922 was a very fraught month. It's important for us to remember that there were attempts to try and keep both sides of the treaty divide talking. The treaty vote itself had come in on the 7th of January and it was a close vote between the pro and the anti-treaty sides, um, 64 votes in favor, 57 votes against. So De Valera and the anti-treatyites had lost the political argument and there were obvious implications for politics, but also for military. What did it mean for the IRA? And what we're getting in the first few months of 1922 are desperate attempts to try and bring both sides together, to try and keep the door open. So all of those feelings, those thoughts are swirling around. And what really complicates things in the middle of April 1922 was the occupation of the four courts by the anti-treaty IRA, who are becoming more and more defiant and trenchant. And the rhetoric is intensifying. So that heightens the tension and the temperature. The Lawless funeral comes in the middle of all of that.
0: And I was hoping you could read
1: his gravestone. I can, in loving memory of Frank Lawless, who died 16th of April 1922, aged 51 years.
0: Frank Joseph Lawless was born on the 10th of October 1870, into a family steeped in nationalist politics. Frank's grandfather was involved in the anti-tithe movement. His father was a member of County Dublin Tenants Defence Association. And all of this provided Frank with his early political education. And he went on to become involved in all of the major nationalist movements at the time.
1: Frank Lawless and Frank Lawless's life is one of the evolution and the journey to Irish independence. From my research on Frank's life, he was the prominent politician in that journey from home rule, from parliamentarianism to Irish independence. In 1906, he actually said himself that at a meeting inaugurating Sinn Féin in Swords, one of the first clubs in North County Dublin, he said that he had been a member of the Land League He had been a member of the United Irish League, but since the death of Parnell, every year that passed, had been a year further away from him trusting parliamentarianism as being able to deliver the goals of Irish nationalism. He had been involved in all of the organisations that we will be familiar with on the national stage. The GAA from 1884, the Gaelic League, he was involved in the first Gaelic League clubs. He was also heavily involved with the Carnegie Library in Swords, which again was used as a vehicle for uh, both the Gaelic League and later Sinn Féin meetings. As early as the early 1900s he had organised talks with people like Alice Milligan, uh, the editor of An Van Vogt, Pádraig Pearce came out twice um, and spoke on Irish history. His involvement in the Gaelic League and his involvement in the GAA had taught him how to uh, work on committees, uh, how to network. By 1908, we have evidence of him involved in the Keating, Keatings uh, Gaelic League Club uh, with uh, Tom Clark, Sean MacDiarmada. He's a member of the IRB. And he's, he's moving in significant circles. So his connections and his uh, networks would have been important.
0: During the 1916 Rising, Frank was quartermaster and second in command of the Fingal Battalion of the Irish Volunteers. After the surrender, Frank was court-martialed and sentenced to death. But the sentence was commuted to 10 years in prison. Frank was eventually released in 1917 as part of the General Amnesty, but he immediately returned to Republican activity. He was arrested again in 1918 and ended up spending most of the War of Independence in British prisons. Despite his frequent stints in prison, Frank still had considerable influence in the independence movement.
1: His prominence in the War of Independence would have been limited by his reputation as a member of Sinn Féin and a reputation as a politician. So his military career would have been limited but his political career is what marks him out as one of the leaders of the independence movement. In fact in 1918 Sinn Féin had what we could really call a shadow government, a government in waiting and he was agriculture spokesman Also, after the Dáil Éireann Department of Local Government was set up under William Cosgrave, he was one of the earliest advisers, but he was a very important politician, not alone in North County Dublin, but on the national stage. And I think that was borne out by who attended his funeral here in April of 1922.
0: On the 16th of April 1922, Frank Lawless died in an accident. He had been travelling with his son Colm by horse and trap when the horse took fright and overturned the trap. Colum wasn't harmed, but Frank suffered catastrophic head injuries. He died later that evening. Two days later, Frank's funeral was held in the Pro Cathedral in Dublin. His coffin was accompanied by five battalions of the IRA and a parade of 100 civic guards. Three volleys were fired over his grave and a photographer captured the now famous image of the pro-treaty and anti-treaty leaders, former friends and former comrades, standing together for the final time.
5: Oh, well, you can appreciate the tension that would have been there in that gathering around the graveside. And there is decorum and there's respect for the dead. And there's the sorrow and the sadness that comes with what had been a tragic accident. But there's also obviously great interpersonal tension.
0: And as the mourners walk away from the grave, we are once again reminded of the timing of this event and perhaps the missed opportunity for peace.
5: So the the Lord Mayor, Lawrence O'Neill, spoke at a special meeting of Dublin Corporation on the 22nd of April, 1922. So this is a few days after the funeral of Lawless, because they were passing a vote of sympathy. And what Lawrence O'Neill, as Lord Mayor said on that occasion, was that he saw around him so many of the leaders of the people He felt a joyful hope that over the grave of Frank Lawless, they would once more unite for the welfare of Ireland. Now, that's very poetic, but it's also hopelessly delusional. And I mean, it's important to recognize that Lawrence O'Neill saw himself very much as an honest broker, attempting to bring the two sides together. And in fairness to him, he was very active in relation to that. And like so many, he was desperate to prevent conflict. And they're very sincere and they're very afraid. He feels there is a civic duty to try and prevent Dublin becoming once again a battleground. But there's also an element of delusion there. Is it really the situation that you can look at the grave of Frank Lawless at that time, at that gathering, at that funeral, and think that that might be the glue that will gel both sides together, that they will begin to come to their senses or come to the realisation that we cannot go down this dangerous path. It's a noble aspiration, but it is really highly unlikely, if not delusional.
0: And when it comes to the major offence and the big names of Irish history, we all know what happens next. By the summer of 1922, civil war is in full flight and by August, Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith have died. But what happens next in the Frank Lawless story? Well, at a very practical level, Frank's death places a huge financial strain on his family. His wife Catherine is left to run the farm and to care for their nine children. And in many ways, this is the story of the Irish Revolution. It couldn't have happened without people like Frank Lawless. In every town and village in Ireland, there were men and women who provided the energy energy leadership and local organisation to turn the dream of Irish independence into a reality.
1: Of some of the tributes that were paid to Frank Lawless, one was from Dr Richard Hayes, who had been the medical officer with the Irish Volunteers uh, in Fingal. And he summed up Frank Lawless as he was very lovable, very chivalrous, very true. And in the tragic divisions of these latter months, While he took the side he thought best for Ireland, he never showed a trace of bitterness, always attributing to those on the other side the highest and the purest motives. Little wonder that all his old comrades, forgetful of passing differences, gathered around his open grave in Colossary, where he sleeps his last sleep. President Griffith speaks a few fitting words of praise of this dead Irish soldier whose whole life was a valiant battle for Irish ideals. And so we leave him here in the heart of Old Fingal, where he worked and where he fought for Ireland. I think that really sums up what I've been saying about Frank's life. Everything he did politically, everything he did locally was to get that independence for Ireland, but also to ensure that those around him could live a better life. And I think the words are most appropriate standing here today at his grave because it's a very, very simple, sincere and honest appreciation of a man who gave his life for Ireland.
2: Connor Sweetman was reporting there on the life and legacy of Frank Lawless. After the break, Dr Antonia Hart joins me to talk about her research into Irish businesswomen in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Did you know that in the mid-19th century, Dublin city centre was packed with women women running their own businesses. Well, actually, it wasn't just Dublin. All across Ireland, women were also running businesses. This is extraordinary, considering what Ireland was like at the time, a male-dominated, patriarchal society. They challenged the status quo, these women, and didn't limit themselves to businesses associated with other women. They were pawnbrokers, they were tobacconists, distillers, they ran medical halls, and many proved they were just as able as any man, despite what society at the time might have thought. Joining me this evening is historian Dr Antonia Hart, who's recently completed a PhD entitled Irish Women in Business 1850 to 1922, Navigating the Credit Economy. She spent the last number of years unearthing the stories of these extraordinary women, who they were and what they did. Antonia, you're very welcome indeed to the History Show. Your research covers the period from the end of the famine to the creation of the Irish Free State. Now, what impact, if any, first of all, did the famine have on women and their ability to enter the world of business? Because we don't think of this period or indeed the period after as being one where there were opportunities for women to be anything other than wives and mothers.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it does come as a surprise to find that women were, were running businesses at all. And certainly one of the one of the many aftershocks of the famine was that everything was split open really you know you couldn't have that level of loss and that level of death and emigration without society kind of cracking apart and and reforming and I think you probably would say that life opened up for both men and women Um, people were getting married later literacy levels were rising you know there had been ever since the introduction of the national school system in the 30s and there was a drift towards urban centres and I think that's a a story we probably know well. But also consumption of things like shop bought food was increasing and so you you see opportunities for women arising you know not just in areas like teaching and as clerical staff but also in areas like retail and hospitality uh, which often involved starting up a business
2: were there any legal barriers in the 1850s to women establishing a business
3: um well of course there were there were difficulties with uh, property ownership and that began to change with the married women's property act in the in the 80s there was a a lot of difficulty, obviously, for women in accessing credit, and in fact, particularly in the early part of my research, um, a lot of the women don't have bank accounts, and they're operating purely on on cash and and credit, but they're not actually keeping track of things in in bank accounts or or. They don't have mortgages and it's very difficult actually for them to access credit when they need it.
2: Okay, let's look at the the main thoroughfare of Dublin. Sackville Street as it was, O'Connell Street as it became. Were there many women running businesses there or in the immediate area?
3: Well, actually, there were, yes. And I mean, Sackville Street, it's amazing. It's this huge street, you know, it's 150 feet wide with this amazing approach down to the river. And... It's fascinating because obviously it was jammed with, with with residents, but it was also connected to the quays. So it was near the port area and Eden Key there had all kinds of rail and sea travel related businesses. But Sackville Street itself was where the really smart shops were. You know, it was where the smart hotels were, the luxury confectioners and the pipe and cigar shops, the department stores. And it's where everybody wanted to do business and it's where the smart shoppers wanted to go. So I looked at it really to to try to get an idea of what going into town would have felt like, say, in in the 1890s, for example, and whether people would have seen women's businesses, whether they would have been aware of them. So let's say if you got a tram in from the suburbs and you got off at what is now the spire, which would have been the pillar, which was the tram terminus. And if you did um, a sort of 15-minute amble, really, down Sackville Street along Eden Quay, up Marlborough Street and back to the the, the pillar, I should say, to get your tram home. On that walk, you would have passed, at street level, about 300 businesses and about 30 of those would have been run by women. So it probably doesn't seem like a lot, but when you think that on that 15-minute walk you would have been passing a woman's business every 30 seconds, I think then you start to get an idea of how normal it must have seemed for a visitor to the city, for a Dubliner, that it was completely commonplace Mm. to see a woman in business. It must have been entirely unsurprising to them. Um, And I think that's really interesting because it's not just about the stats on women, but it's also about what we can learn about the experience for everybody of living in 19th century Dublin.
2: This must have been one of the most sought after parts of the city of Dublin. And in fact, one of the most sought after shopping areas in Ireland. So that if women are established, even at a ratio of nine to one, basically, around the rest of the country, there must have been similar statistics or perhaps slightly better than that.
3: Around the rest of the country, yeah. And it's really gratifying, you know, when when you go looking for them in Belfast, in Cork, in Limerick. And then also in smaller towns, you know, in, in Westport and also in, in very rural villages. There are women there in their thousands running businesses.
2: But they weren't just doing the predictable things. They weren't just catering to other women. Not that the male shop owners didn't cater to women at the time as, as well. Give us an idea of the kind of range of activities they were involved in.
3: Mostly they were involved in fairly small, locally focused businesses. They were in retail and hospitality, you know, where you'd probably expect to find them. So they're running shops and hotels and restaurants and cafes and boarding houses. But you do also see them in more unusual environments and in male dominated environments like distilling. There were two or three successful distillers in large distilleries. I came across, I think, maybe sort of twelve to fifteen women who were owning and managing regional newspapers. Some obviously more active than others, um, but you find them running sawmills, chair manufacturers, servants' agencies, and then you and you find them in pawnbroking, which was was massive, massively how, important. How
2: did women get into pawnbroking?
3: Well, I mean, pawnbroking is so interesting. And as I say, it's, it's it's really important um, in the nineteenth century. And the pawnbroker himself or, or or herself is a much mythologized figure, I suppose. I suppose obviously, if you were if you were a woman or you were poor or if you were otherwise marginalised, it was very difficult to access credit, very difficult to borrow money other than. Within your network of friends and family. But in the pawnbroker, you know, you could walk into the pawnbroker with some small portable item, a piece of jewelry or a piece of clothing or a set of tools, and with almost no paperwork and virtually no questions, you could walk out again having converted that at least on a temporary basis, to cash. Could you then
2: walk down the road and open your own pawnbroker's
3: shop? Well, I'm not sure you would have made enough from pawning your boots to do that. Because you needed quite a lot of money and to jump through a number of hoops. It was a, a very, very regulated financial services industry. You had to be licensed. You had to have enough money to put up a surety. On your own behalf, you also had to get, well, it varied at different times, but usually about three other people to put up sureties for you. There were other costs. You know, you had to get a plate licence if you were going to deal in silver. You had to get a tobacco and snuff licence if that's what you wanted to do. You had to be very financially literate. You had to make monthly returns and pay a shilling every time you did that to the regulator. And if you were a pawnbroker in Dublin, you also had to pay £100 tax effectively to the Dublin Metropolitan Police because pawnbrokers were associated with crime and so to compensate for the extra level of business. They had to support the city policing budget. So you had to be ready to jump through all these hoops before you could actually um, get going. But evidently, the rewards were there and they were sufficient to attract plenty of women because you find plenty of women throughout the late 19th century and the early 20th century, you do find plenty of women active in pawnbroking.
2: In you mentioned some unusual activities that you would not immediately associate with women, owning newspapers, owning distilleries for example. Were those inherited rather than established as independent, as new entities by the women themselves in the main...
3: There's no getting away from the fact that, of course, I would love to be able to say that women started their own businesses and, and through their own agency decided what they wanted to do and develop the skills to do it. But there is no getting away from the fact that a lot of them did inherit businesses. Well,
2: most of the men inherited businesses as well. well. that's so, true. Mean, you know, the... That's
3: true. And some of the men were inheriting businesses from their mothers as well as from, mm. from their fathers. You see that with women as well. They might have inherited from a mother or a father or from a husband. But you also see them going into partnerships. You see female friends going into partnership. I can think of a... a female partnership in, in, in millinery, for example. There was also um a very successful legal scrivener's firm in Dame Street, which was a three way partnership between three sisters, Ada Olive and Amy What Yates. is the Scriveners' firm? Oh, me. the legal Scriveners, they did all kinds of things. They basically made fair copies of things like wills and legal, legal documents. Um, they would have typed things up for people and...
2: So uh, the kind of stuff that we read when we go into an historical archive now, basically.
3: Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. OK, let's talk about some of the personalities involved. Who was Margaret Lowry?
3: Margaret Larry. Your Marga-
2: face just lit up when I mentioned <laughs> Margaret Larry. You see,
3: I was going to say she's one of my favourite, but of course they're all in, in one way or another my favourites. Margaret Lowry ran the first class porn office in Marlborough Street at 85 Marlborough Street, slap bang up against the Pro Cathedral. And in fact, that premises is still a pawnbroker's shop and a lovely jeweller's as well. So she
2: represented Mammon and next door was God. Next door presumably. was God.
3: And that shop actually still has the three golden balls Hanging as a as a sign outside, but Margaret she'd already been widowed once as a, as a young woman, and she married again. She married a guy called Lawrence McNally, who's a very successful Dublin pawnbroker, and when he died, Margaret took over the shop. And there's plenty of surviving paperwork from her time, so you can actually see her in a private archive: her pawnbroking license, the receipt for the money she paid to the DMP, her plate license, all that kind of thing. And actually, there are surviving pawn tickets printed in in her name. But her shop was a really it was really high end. She wasn't really dealing in shawls and boots. She was dealing in diamond rings and oil paintings and grand pianos. You know, she was very high end. But But the shop was
2: destroyed in 1916, wasn't
3: it? Well, it was. And in fact, you can get a glimpse of the kind of stock that she was carrying because her shop was looted. And so a number of people made claims for items that they had pawned before the rising started. As they made their compensation claims to the Property Losses Ireland Committee, they detailed what it was they had left with her. So that's a really interesting insight to, to what she dealt in. And in fact, there was one fellow called Thomas Malone, I think was his name. And he made a claim for certain items which he had with very bad timing left into her at the beginning of April 1916. A silver chain and a gold bracelet, various items of jewellery. But when he came to make his claim to the Property Losses Committee, he had to explain, and I'm sure he was rather embarrassed to do so, that the name on the ticket wasn't actually his name because he had pawned the items using a false name.
2: (laughs) Hoist with his own petard. Absolutely. Did he get away with it? Did he get, did he get the compensation?
3: He didn't get as much as he was looking right, for. Right,
2: OK. Well, he probably didn't but deserve the, as they much they as he was looking did. for. They very did. OK, um, now, Mary-Anne Locke, L-O-C-K-E. It's an unusual name and it's, an, it's a name that I associate with whiskey.
3: And you'd be right to, yeah. Mm, Mary-Anne Locke. Tell me about Locke. her. So she was born Mary-Anne Devereaux. Her father was, was a distiller. And she married John Locke, who ran the Bresner Distillery, which we now know. As locks. And I think it was interesting the fact that she grew up with the distiller as a father, because what's quite interesting is looking at how women came by the skills that they needed to operate in a particular industry. And she evidently came to the marriage and ultimately to her inheritance with either absorbed knowledge or knowledge that she had actively sought in the environment that she grew up in. And Sometimes you see with women who have who've inherited from a a husband, sometimes they're just sort of keeping things ticking over until maybe an eldest son can take over. And in fact, that is what ultimately happened to Marianne Locke. But she wasn't just keeping things ticking over. She was innovating and pushing the whole time. She increased the production output of the distillery. She introduced a retail store outside the distillery, so locals could come and buy whiskey and take it home, either to, to drink or to, or to sell on in their own shops. And she also kind of woke the company up to the market that was out there for the whiskey. So she developed partnerships with blenders in Belfast, in Dublin, and London, and used the the developing sort of canal and, and, and rail infrastructure. Were they
2: based in Kilbegan?
3: In Gilbagon, yeah, mm. where they still are. Yeah, indeed, yeah.
2: yeah. Now, the women obviously were not, there for afraid to be innovative, afraid to take risks. Um, tell me about Eliza Jane Bell and how she left her mark.
3: Well, Eliza Jane Bell, so we're back to Sackville Street now for Eliza Jane Bell. She was another inheritor. She inherited Butler's Medical Hall, which was at 53 and 54 Sackville Street, which is now Burger King. Um, Butler's had already been going for about 60 years when she inherited it. And it was a really well-established, really successful business. It was kind of part apothecary. It had a compounding department, you know, where they made up prescriptions. And they also sold hundreds and hundreds of own brand remedies for anything you could think of under the Butler's label. So you could buy cough lozenges or headache pills or powders. So Eliza Jane Bell's husband, Sandman Bell, had gone from a, a kind of partnership to sole ownership of the medical hall and he had undertaken a, a rebuild of the premises. But the full programme of modernization really came to fruition on Eliza's watch. Salomon Bell died when they'd been married for only two years, so she was only 28 when she inherited. But she launched right into it and she really recreated Butler's medical hall, really much more in the in the shape of the kind of retail chemist that we would know today. You know, where you might get your pack of ibuprofen and your COVID tests, but you might also get maybe a scented candle and, you know, a birthday present for somebody. And then later on, you know, by the turn of the century, something that I think is really interesting is that Butler's Medical Hall was advertising that it was a stockist of Southall's um, disposable sanitary towels. And I mean, you know, nobody needs me to tell them how how revolutionary that must have seemed, you know, over a hundred years ago, one hundred and twenty years ago. How how liberating it would have been to have access to that kind of product. Now, obviously, it was for women who could afford them. You know, it was a couple of shillings for a a half dozen pack. So I really like the idea of Eliza Jane Bell being progressive, you know, being in a position to do something that might seem small, that made a real qualitative difference to Irish women's lives and that she was happy to be public about the fact that she was doing it.
2: Um, dressmaking, that's an, an industry that you would associate with women where women, many women succeeded. One of them, a very, very interesting woman indeed. And that was Kathleen Clark, you know, a fascinating woman in her own right, but also widow of the 1916 leader, uh, Tom Clark. What did she do?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. Who doesn't already love Kathleen Clarke? She was born Kathleen Daly in Limerick and before she lived with her uncle who ran a bakery. But she was determined, before she was 18, she was determined that she was going to be independent from her uncle. And so she pleaded with him to allow her to do an apprenticeship with a dressmaker. And he did. And when she was 18, then she started her own business in Cecil Street in Limerick. And her family was actually really quite against it. They thought she was too young. She writes about this in her memoir. They thought she was too young. They thought she didn't have enough experience. They thought that people wouldn't have confidence in her and wouldn't bring her any custom.
2: She didn't pay much attention to her family in general, did she? She She They didn't want her to marry Tom Clark, either.
3: She paid zero attention. (laughs) Made absolutely no difference to her. And her dressmaking business was a wild success. She had to increase her staff all the time. She had to move to larger premises in in O'Connell Street. And obviously, of course, she met Tom and they had this very passionate love story. And he was in America and she was making plans to close up the business and go to be with him over there to marry him in America, which she eventually did. But during the couple of years leading up to that, she writes to him about the business and how busy she is and what she's working on and all all the sort of daily frustrations of it. And she also writes about closing up and how difficult it is and that she can't just leave people in the lurch and there's a great fate coming up and people want to be turned out well for it and she's got to provide them with the outfits that they're expecting. But she does close up in the end, and um, she went over to him in 1901. I think she went over to marry him. But even after they were were married, they together went into the the ice cream shop business, which was after their first child was born and, and Tom had lost his job. She was the one who had the savings. She was the one who had the money to put into the shop, and she was also the one who had the commercial experience to run it. And then later on, they ran a farm and she wrote about having the first cauliflowers from Long Island into the New York market. I mean, fantastic. <laughs> and um, and how they got the best price for them. And and then, of course, they came back to Ireland together and ran the, the tobacconist shops that everybody would would know about. And I really love the idea that, you know, there was this combination of the sort of high minded Republican idealism with this very pragmatic commercial knowledge and, and experience that she brought to bear on their lives and ensured an income stream for the family.
2: Now, we've been talking about the success stories, but business is something that is also associated with failure or failure is associated with business. Were you able to come across any of those kind of records detailing failures in business?
3: Yeah, I mean, there were plenty of failures. You know, you'd love to be able to say that, you, you know, women were successful at everything they did. And of course, they weren't. And a great treasure trove of of sources I found in the public record office in Northern Ireland, where they have bankruptcy records from the Belfast Local Bankruptcy Court. And while they are detailing struggle and failure, they're also absolutely fascinating because they're really detailed. And so they give you an insight into, often an insight into the kind of the narrative of the business and how it ended up in difficulty There's a schedule of debts owed and debts owing, so you can get a picture of the kind of business that they were doing. At the time things started to go wrong, you start to see the tension between offering credit to a customer on the one hand, yet owing your supplier on the other hand. And at some point, you know, that gap becomes just too big to bridge. The bankruptcy records also have, quite often they'll have a schedule of assets so you'll see, you know, what you might call the, the kind of material culture of the small business. They will list, you know, a bacon slicer, a couple of marble slabs, a mahogany counter, a delivery cart, that kind of thing, which really kind of vividly brings to life a picture of the, the daily life of what it was like working in the shop. And then they quite often they lived over the shop as well. So after the bacon slicer, you'll come across the couple of bedroom chairs, mm. a wardrobe, you know, a mirror. And you can really imagine this woman getting out of bed and doing her hair and going downstairs and standing at the counter and starting to slice the bacon.
2: But also potentially having to part with these once the bankruptcy is completed.
3: And glad they had them at, at, mm. at that point because they they were saleable items, yeah.
2: Um if anybody's interested in what we were, we were talking about particularly in relation to 1916 the Property Losses Committee records of 1916 are available on the National Archives Ireland website so you can find out more about Mr Malone and, and his alias fascinating records and they shine a the light on the, the many many women who were running businesses at the time unfortunately the women whose businesses were basically destroyed by the 1916 rising but you do get an insight it's been great to talk to you Antonio thank you very much indeed to talk to you about how women took up the opportunity to set up businesses when it really wasn't what society was dictating at the time. Thank you very much for joining us on The History Show.
3: Thank you so much.
2: That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath and Mark Dwyer on sound and our researcher, Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer, Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.